In death as in life, the British Queen Elizabeth II is at the center of a media spectacle. Russia faces setbacks on the battlefield and in the state media narrative. And Latin American politicians take their political shtick to TikTok. Hello, I'm Meenakshi Ravi and you're at The Listening Post. This is where we dissect what gets covered by the media and why it's covered that way. For British news outlets, it's a story for which the coverage has been planned and practiced for decades. Globally, the death of Queen Elizabeth II has generated a level of interest that few other stories about a single individual ever will. Her position, largely symbolic, as head of state of the United Kingdom and 14 other countries, is one of the reasons why there's so much public fascination for this story. But there's more to it. The royal family has long understood the value of being in the public eye and have honed and refined how, when and what they show the media. They cannot control it all, of course. The coverage since the Queen's passing is a case in point. While British news outlets have maintained a tone of reverence, media beyond in the United States, Australia, Kenya have not shied away from thorny issues like the monarchy's role as unrepentant figureheads of colonialism and all its abuses. We start our report this week in London. The BBC is interrupting its normal programmes to bring you an important announcement. British TV is in mourning. BBC television is broadcasting this special programme. And I'm afraid to say in the last few moments... Buckingham Palace has just announced... The death of Queen Elizabeth II. Since Thursday the 8th of September, media in the UK have been leading with a single story. The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. With the BBC leading the charge, broadcasters have taken up their positions as conductors of a chorus of national grief. It's a moment of great solemnity and national sadness. It's hard, really, fully to take it in. If much of the coverage has seen pre-packaged, stage-managed, that's because it has been. Well, the death of the Queen was always going to be a massive story here. And media organisations, broadcast organisations, had been, to be blunt, rehearsing for her death for years. I remember doing rehearsals. 10, 15 years ago. So they were prepared. There was a plan in place. Every single minute of this week has been planned to the absolute detail because, you know, at this moment of a death of a national figure, particularly one who's been so central to the monarchy for so long and who a lot of people have popular affection for, at that moment of that person's death, there is, I think, real risk to an institution that that will fracture some of the goodwill. And I think you can see, perhaps through how meticulous it, this has been planned, that they kind of know that that's a risk. We wake this morning to a country changed, a country saddened, a country that has lost a defining part of who and what we are. Queen Elizabeth was the glue that often held us together. They need to be sure that the tone is set, that everyone's receiving the news in the right way, and that it's being reported in a way that will maximise kind of positive representations for the institution, not just for this individual woman. The institution that is the British monarchy is a remarkable one. More than a thousand years old, it predates the United Kingdom itself, and to this day, it is ubiquitous in the affairs of the nation. Queen Elizabeth's profile is on postage stamps and banknotes. Royal charters provide the legal foundation for all kinds of institutions, including the BBC. 
and the elected government is formed in quote her or his majesty's name beyond those largely symbolic functions are more controversial aspects of monarchy its main source of income is the so-called sovereign grant funded by taxpayers there's also a little known rule called queen's consent now king's consent which allows the monarch to vet legislation that infringes on his or her land or wealth and have it altered almost none of the coverage of the queen's death has reflected on those issues nor has it acknowledged the history of how the family's wealth and power came to be including the monarchy's deep intertwinement with british colonialism and slavery for which neither queen elizabeth nor her predecessors ever apologized i was asked by the new york times to write a piece about the queen and her relationship to the british empire the piece was published right after the announcement came from buckingham palace about the queen's death and there was immediate global pushback the piece was picked up quickly by right-wing media on both sides of the atlantic it featured in the daily mail a couple of times it was uh, you know taken to task in the spectator the telegraph it was picked up in the US by Breitbart and it even helped inspire a monologue by Tucker Carlson on Fox News uh, delivering praise for the British Empire now in 2022 the british empire was not perfect but it was far more humane than any other ever and one of the things that came through in a lot of that um pushback was that it's too soon to talk about this we shouldn't talk about this now we should simply honor the legacy of the queen for people who say uh now is not the time uh, when it comes to critiques of the monarchy my argument is this is exactly the time because at a point of transition is the time at which these conversations can and should be had now of course uh, there are human beings involved whose mother grandmother great grandmother has died and it would be inhuman not to respect their personal grief but to use that as a means of saying that we cannot criticize the institution that the queen represented things that she did or things that will come next is a huge problem i've been working for american tv and for australian tv the us network that i have been working for had a correspondent very quickly in Jamaica discussing questions about the role of the monarchy there in the slave trade the enslaved forced to the west indies by the royal african company they harvested sugar known as green gold talking to people who felt that it was now time for the nation to sever its ties with the monarchy that the queen should no longer be its head of state now that would have been far too abrupt for a british broadcaster they've been waiting for what they feel is the right moment to start raising those issues given the sort of reverence in which the queen was held it's that kind of reverence that has moved people from across the uk to come here and pay their respects for many the monarchy was not just a symbol it's part of what it means to be british however reverence whether guided by protocol or genuine feeling is unwelcome uncomfortable in a newsroom and while some brits may accept that as a justification for the media's reluctance to speak ill of the dead fewer will tolerate other stories important ones being overlooked well i think we're in an incredibly unstable time in britain at the moment we've had a new prime minister 3 days before the queen died and actually we've seen 
little to no coverage of the kind of policies that might be enacted. So for instance, we have the energy bills crisis, which is ongoing, and which the BBC, one particular presenter on the BBC said, That of course, insignificant now. Well, of course, that's not insignificant when people are set to not be able to afford their energy bills, to be cold all winter. There definitely will be deaths that come from that. And there's various other kind of instabilities in Britain at the moment, still kind of coming from Brexit, the pandemic is still ongoing. And all of that has been pushed aside, I think, in favour of this one particular story. Uh, stay with us, we have got some breaking news. If you're just joining us, we've woken up to the news that the Queen... Elizabeth Joe Media fixation with the death of Queen Elizabeth hasn't been confined to Britain. 70 years on the throne made her a globally recognised icon. Königin Elizabeth II is taught. Queen Elizabeth II has passed over the age of 96. The Queen died peacefully. The state funeral will be covered around the world, much like royal weddings are. Media outlets will clear space in their schedules to track the pomp, protocol and pageantry of the event. This kind of media commodification of royal events is no accident. It's a product of years of careful strategizing by the monarchy. Playing with a combination of celebrity and inscrutability, the palace has sought to maintain its relevance, status and power by becoming a media asset like no other. My lords, This is a crucial time, as the crown moves from the enigmatic Queen Elizabeth to the much more outspoken King Charles. One important thing about the Queen is that you can put whatever we want onto her. She's an image, she's symbolic. You can think whatever you want that she thinks. We can imagine ourselves sharing an opinion with her. You can't do that with Charles because we know exactly what he thinks about lots of different issues and he's been very vocal about those things in the past. But that directly counteracts that very careful image that they've really uh, created with the Queen over the years. And that perhaps damages that kind of apolitical view of the monarch that has been really important in the Queen's reign. So I think watching how that pans out over the next few years and whether they use different strategies then to think about how to present Charles to the people I think will be interesting. People know a lot more about Prince Charles, about the things he does and doesn't like, the things he has done and hasn't done. So it's not as easy for him to be a blank slate. Uh, so we'll see a lot of the royal family being presented as slimmed down and uh, more efficient for the modern age and more affordable. All of that is PR, it is spin. It's a want to continue this notion of the monarchy somehow as the uh, ceremonial parents or grandparents of the nation. I understand why people feel that because it's a story that they've been told all their lives, but I don't believe it's a true story. Seven months since Russia invaded Ukraine, what the Kremlin calls a special military operation, there have been breakthroughs on the battlefield that have had repercussions for the Russian state media narrative. Flo Phillips has more. That's right, Mina. Ukraine's military breakthroughs have really rocked Russia and its rhetoric on the invasion. On September 6th, Ukrainian forces launched an offensive to regain control of cities in the Kharkiv region, cities that had been under Russian occupation since early March. Ukraine's counteroffensive, the most successful since the Battle of Kyiv back in April, has prompted a change in Russian media terminology. Many TV pundits have dropped the term special military operation and are finally calling this what it has always been, a war. Acknowledging the war has also triggered another reality check, forcing some to admit that the Russian military is in trouble. 
Надо признать того поражения, как... Anger over Russia's setbacks has not been confined to TV. Channels on the messaging app Telegram have been ablaze with pro-war military bloggers and war correspondents condemning President Putin's silence, as well as military officials, including Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, criticizing the Russian army's strategy. Pro-Kremlin pundits have been quick to come to the army's defense. Rhetoric about NATO aggression has been a constant part of Russia's narrative about this war. And while phrases and terminologies might change, the NATO line does not. Thanks, Flo. Latin America is once again witnessing a familiar political tug-of-war. Across the continent, just as right-wing populists reach the crest of a wave, left-wing socialists roll back the tide. However, there is one place where conservative politicians have undisputed dominance. TikTok, the social media platform of the moment. From Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro, to El Salvador with Nayib Bukele, to Colombia and Rodolfo Hernandez. All these right-wing politicians rely heavily on TikTok to sell themselves. There is a deep public dissatisfaction in Latin America with the political status quo. Traditional party allegiances are melting away, particularly with young voters. And TikTok, with its quick, slick and catchy videos, seems to be providing these bombastic politicians with a path straight to that demographic. The listening posts Ryan calls now on the impact this social media platform is having on politics across the continent. It looks like something a grandfather might post if he was on TikTok. Special moments with his granddaughter. La luna para mi Introducing you to his family. Y a ti para toda mi vida. Except it's not just any grandfather. Rodolfo Hernandez was a candidate in Colombia's recent presidential election. And the voice you hear isn't his. It belongs to a famous FIFA commentator familiar to all Latin American ears. So what looks personal is in fact a carefully designed, narrated, an ultimately political piece of work. Hernandez, he's an old guy, right-winger. You would think just by those two elements that he wouldn't be connected to a younger audience. But then again, through a 15 second video of TikTok, he's connecting with a very popular element in young people's lives, which is video games, FIFA, TikTok, love. That video is a classic example of the Hernandez political strategy. Catchy, relatable, and seemingly authentic, delivered to Colombians directly via TikTok, arguably the social media platform that helped propel him from a small town mayor into the final round of the election where he got an astonishing 47% of the vote. It's why Hernandez has been dubbed the TikTok king, but it's a crown he shares with others in the region. All around Latin America, you can see leaders engaging in TikTok from Venezuela to Chile to Brazil to Honduras. They can use social media to just create a different public image of themselves because they know that that's where the voters are, right? They know it's a platform that they can't really afford to not participate in, to be a part of. TikTok has been co-opted as a tool for political communication by leaders across the world. 
But there is something distinctive about Latin America. It's home to a population of more than 650 million that skews young, a demographic where dissatisfaction with the political and social status quo runs deep, one that is open to taking its politics in TikTok-sized bites. Most young voters across the region are less interested in politics than their older counterparts, and they identify less with uh, traditional parties, of course. Traditional messages are going to be less effective. What will be effective? Well, material that is not really connected to traditional politics. The use of social networks in Latin America is primarily due to the erosion of key institutions, like political parties and the media. And these politicians like to talk directly to the voters without any kind of filter, any kind of censorship. A lot of authoritarian leaders in in Latin America try to, to build that audience because then they know that they no longer need to rely on traditional media. They're constantly in this fine line of how can I get my political agenda that is really controversial, but that people accept it somehow. Gone are the days when voters were forced to rely on televised debates to make their choices. It turns out that TikTok provides politicians with what they want, immediacy, and the intimacy that comes with looking right down the lens, bypassing the mainstream media and its gatekeepers, and connecting with young voters. President Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil and Nayib Bukele in El Salvador got into office before TikTok grew into what it is today. In those election campaigns, they focused their efforts on platforms like WhatsApp and Facebook, but they've changed with the times and now rely on TikTok heavily to try to stay in power. So much of Bolsonaro's content is not talking about his political agenda. He tries to create an image that he's really loved and really accepted and that anywhere he goes, people are, are open uh, to him. But it's interesting to see how his content has shifted over time. As the elections are approaching, he is getting less into the dancing and hugging and playing games and more into what he actually plans for his government. He is talking about legalizing marijuana or not. He is talking about gas prices, about violence. In 2016, On TikTok, you're going to see a lot of political content that is not political right away, but it's showing a politician, you know, in a non-political setting. If you look at Bukele, for example, you will see in his TikToks videos where he's uh, showing himself as being tough on crime. Lo que hemos hecho en poco más de una semana nos dice que podemos acabar con ese cáncer que se llaman pandillas. Combined with videos where he's in a restaurant with his wife and his daughter and his daughter is reading the menu. That combination is not um, random. He broke the barriers between entertainment, information, and persuasion, creating so-called infotainment. 
Bukele's videos include political commentary, but also entertain you and excite you. Politicians and the political class, particularly in Latin America, are frowned upon. So when you communicate, you have to break down those barriers and try to connect with the people. There's another term that's been coined in the past year that bands together leaders like Bukele, Bolsonaro, and Hernandez. It's called millennial authoritarianism. It's defined as a political strategy that combines populist appeal and authoritarian behavior with a youthful personal brand built on social media. And whether it's the language these right-wing politicians use or the audience they target, their message sells really well on TikTok. The world is experiencing a crisis, an explosion of polarization, which makes those candidates who are more extremist more successful. Their communication style hooks viewers by creating conflict, shouting instead of having a conversation. TikTok helps humanize these candidates. Being easy to digest may work for one side of the political spectrum, but what about the other? Politicians on the left, with their traditional focus on issues like inequality and social welfare, find TikTok's condensed, quick-hit format much harder to master. And candidates like Brazil's Lula da Silva, Jair Bolsonaro's chief rival in the upcoming election, understand that one way or another, they have to up their TikTok game. He realized a little bit late that it's a platform where he can just share his political views in a way that feels aligned to his political agenda and just um, speak more closely to people, especially to youths. But it took him a long time to join TikTok. A time during which he lost important ground to his chief rival. And despite Lula leading in the polls and his numbers rising on TikTok, Bolsonaro still dominates the platform. And as the left and right continue to jostle for power across Latin America, TikTok is a strategic pawn they need to play to become king. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, people couldn't imagine Facebook campaigns, which are now a reality everywhere. The same is going to happen with TikTok. The speed with which it will be adopted will only continue to increase. In a few years, TikTok will not only be the young people, but we will all be there. And finally, back to the royal coverage. In her lifetime, Queen Elizabeth was an inscrutable global figure, widely seen, but hardly known in any real sense. Her successor, King Charles, is entirely different. The very public scandals of his personal life together with instances of political lobbying, have meant that casting him as a serene, silent monarch may not be possible. However, the palace isn't doing this image-making entirely on its own. Royal correspondents, eager to maintain their access to the family, are pitching in with a little bit of PR as well. There's no denial of the challenges the new king faces, but it's sweetened with a bit of spin. We leave you with some of the gushing praise that went out on air this past week, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Tonight, attention turns to her successor, the Queen's eldest son, now King Charles III, 
has spent almost his entire life preparing for the mighty role he's inherited. I'm interested in what Charles is going to do here. Obviously, the shoes are very big to fill uh, of his mother. Charles, who's never traditionally been, like, super popular, you know, yeah. uh, he's actually been so warmly embraced by everyone, and I think it's because, as well, we're seeing this really vulnerable side of him because he's a man who's grieving his mum. Everyone is now looking to him, a man known so well as the Prince of Wales, to lead them through the grief to a brighter future. Does he now, as king, command that just extra kind of magic and mystique that draws people around the world to him? This man is an absolute gem, and we should put our hands together in this country. We've got him. He is a very warm and kind and loving and conscientious person. We have much to praise him for and nothing to criticise him for. Prince Charles getting to work even as he is grieving his mother, but as his mother showed us, that is what duty means. He is determined to succeed. Uh, he's had to wait a long time for it. Uh, he's not going to blow it now.